I'm honored you're here. My name's JD. I get to be the pastor of Christ Church Charlestown. Uh, we are a church that's about four years old here in my neighborhood. My family's lived here five years. And we just have a real simple mission that we want to bring Charlestown together around the gospel. I know in talking with some of you this morning that some of you were not raised very religious. Some of you were raised Roman Catholic. Some of you were raised in Protestant churches. That's great. Like, if you live in this neighborhood or live around this neighborhood, we want you to be here, and we want this to be a place where people can come together, regardless of where they've been, what they believe at this point, just kind of saying, hey, we're coming around Jesus. We're going to do this thing together. And if it's your first time, and some of you told me this morning, you were like, I'm Catholic. What am I getting into this morning? Um, first of all, thank you for your courage and being here. It takes a lot of courage to go into a new spot, and I want to affirm that leap of faith, and also just want to tell you that I think church should not be boring. I've been in plenty of boring churches in my life. I don't know if you've ever been in a boring church. Uh, I want this to be a place of life and of people drinking coffee in big church. I wasn't allowed to do stuff like that as a kid, uh, and where kids can run around and have fun and where people can see their neighbors and speak to one another. We want there to be life here, and we want Jesus to be made much of, and so um, that's my little soapbox this morning. Let me just share a couple of things that we're learning as we get into this building. If you need to use the restroom, uh, if you will, come around to this side and go out here. The restrooms are right out here. There's another way some of you have noticed where you could go down that hallway and get to a restroom, but we want to create an environment where kids are welcomed and safe and it's clean. And so to make sure it stays safe, we're going to ask that if adults need to use the restroom, they go here rather than go down the kids' wing where kids' classes are. Um, just as a general principle, unless you are a kids volunteer, we're going to ask that you not go down the kids' hallway. So if you go to the restroom, go out and to the left. Don't go down the right. And then if parents, when you go to pick your kids up afterwards, rather than going down this hallway, if you'll go pick your kids up out in the lobby, that would be amazing if we could do that on Sundays, and that would be great. All right, that was your PSA. Let's get into the Bible this morning. If you've got a Bible, turn to Philippians 3. We're finishing up a series called Canoeing the Mountains, um, Living and Loving and Leading into Uncharted Territory. This is week five. It's our last uh, service in, in, this, in, in this series. And so it's based on the journeys. Of, it's based on the Bible, first of all. Let's be real. It's based on the Bible. But it's also based on a journey of Lewis and Clark, who were tasked with, in 1804, going from uh, Missouri to the Pacific Northwest and finding a water passage that would take uh, the newly purchased Louisiana ter territory from the middle of America to the West Coast by water. And when Lewis and Clark got to the, the uh, Rocky Mountains, they realized that the mountains were rockier than they had anticipated and that their canoes were no longer going to work. And so even though they had a plan for how they were going to get to uh, the Pacific Ocean, their plan didn't work. And man, if we've learned anything in the last two plus years, it's that we can have a script for our lives but that script does not always get followed by life and the way that life works. And so we want to look at when life doesn't go the way we thought it would in uncharted territory, how do we lead? How do we love? How do we live? And some people might say, well, man, I'm not a leader. I'm just an employee. Uh, I'm the baby of all the siblings. I know that some of you are the youngest born. You think, man, I'm not a leader at all. Some of us in our church just want to kind of stay invisible. Like we want to just 
slink into the dark and no one see us. But listen, if you're the oldest sibling, if you're a parent, if you're a husband, if you're the head of a household, even if you're an employer, maybe even an employee, if you're on a team, uh, if you're on a sports team or you're in a band or anything like that, those are opportunities for us to lead. And so this series has been geared toward that. Today, we, we get to the end of Lewis and Clark's journey. On November 7th, Uh, 1805, one of the guys in their group of the 45 who were with them wrote in his journal, Ocean in View, Ocean in View. As they approached uh, the cold weather, they could see the Pacific Ocean, and now they had a choice. They got to mission accomplished. They got where they were going to go, and they could have done one of two things, actually one of three things. Option one was get on a ship and go all the way around the tip of South uh, America and come back to the East Coast where they would be able to sit and enjoy the finest of food, pull into port as national heroes, and have had a nice several-week journey uh, only to sit on the deck and soak up the sun and not deal with mosquitoes and Rocky Mountains and all of those things. That was option one. Option two was they could go back the exact same way that they came uh, to the Pacific Northwest, go back the same way to Missouri together. And option three, which was the option they chose, which is pretty amazing, on July 3rd, 1806, they actually parted ways. Lewis took half the group. Clark took the other half of the group. They parted ways, and they committed to join back together later in the journey, which they did because for them, there was more to explore. There was more to explore. And if there's a title of today's sermon, it's more to explore. Let me read to you uh, and just uh, let let me ask you two questions and then we'll jump in. For you and the places where you lead, and particularly those of you who say, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Christ. I've given him my life. What is the destination that we're aiming at? For those who are leading something, what is it that you're aiming at? Let's read Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. If you've got a Bible, fantastic. There's some under your seat if you want to read with a paper Bible. I think we'll also put the verses up here as well if you would prefer that. Philippians 3, Paul is actually writing from jail. He uh, is a person starting churches across the Roman Empire, and that's kind of controversial with people who are polytheists, Roman polytheists. It's also controversial with uh, with Jewish people who did not see that Jesus was the risen Messiah. And so he was constantly being thrown in and out of jail and beaten and everything else. And so he's writing this letter um, to the church at a city called Philippi, and he's thanking them for their joy and generosity. And he says this after talking about, he kind of gives at the beginning of chapter 3 his spiritual resume, talks about his family, talks about how much he knows the Bible, how good he was. And then at the end of that, he says, but I don't care about any of that. In fact, the word he uses, he says, I count all that rubbish. I count that like dirty toilet paper compared to the joy and privilege of knowing Christ. He says, and in fact, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes by grace through faith. And then he says this in verse 12, not that I've already obtained all of this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. If you're one of those who writes in your Bible, I love that phrase and the way, like, I love the turn of a phrase here. Christ Jesus has made me his own, and so then I press on to make this, the destination of following Christ, I press on to make that my own. Verse uh, 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it yet my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So Paul, which for you guys who grew up Roman Catholic, you actually have the advantage here. Because, man, I feel like St. Paul is like a big deal. There's like Jesus, Mary, St. Paul, and Peter. Like that's the Mount Rushmore, I feel like, of the Roman Catholic Church, right? Like there's this reverence for those four that's really sweet and good and beautiful. There's Paul who started churches, Paul who caused the gospel to go throughout all of the Roman Empire. It's Paul, and he says he hadn't arrived. Paul never thought he arrived in his faith. He never arrived, though he'd received a lot and accomplished a lot from Christ. He says in verse 12, I have not been made perfect. I haven't arrived. I haven't obtained all this. But here's what Paul did know. And man, let me, for those of us who lay in bed at night or we fret like, if we make a stupid moral decision and we sin past the line that we all have, like here's what I love that he says, Christ has made me his own. Christ had Paul. And if you're a Christian today, if you're a Christ follower today, if not do you have Christ, but does Christ have you? If Christ has you, understand that he has you. And so out of that, being loved and accepted, we press on toward holiness. We press on, Paul said. He was pressing on toward the finish line, living for God's glory and not his own. Uh, I love where it goes down and it says, here's what I do. I forget what lies behind and I strain ahead. I forget what lies behind. I'm straining ahead. One of the things we said at the beginning of the series was, What got us here won't take us there. When we move into uncharted territory, the things that got us here will not take us to the places where God is calling us to go. It's this principle, forgetting what's behind, Paul says, and straining ahead. The image is of a runner running in a race. Like, I feel like we should do our obligatory chariots of fire soundtrack here. But like what Paul is doing is he's saying, I'm I'm not looking back. The runner who's looking back is going to run out of the lane. I'm not looking back. I'm straining toward what's ahead. It's like leaning into the finish line that if I'm going to win by a nose, I'm okay with that. Forgetting what is behind. I can't look back. If I look back, I will get offline. And straining for what is ahead, I press on toward the upward call, what God has asked me to be and do. And so Paul says he persevered. He pressed on, but he never arrived until he took his last breath in this life. If you know, sometime in the mid-60s under uh, Emperor Nero, uh, Paul lost his life. He was beheaded as a follower of Christ, and he entered into eternity. And up until that moment, Paul, if we stood and talked with him today, would say, I had not arrived until that moment. But in that moment, when I took my last breath here and my first breath in eternity, I arrived by God's grace. But until that, it's that question of what is it like to arrive? What's it like to persevere in our thinking? What's it like to press on in our character? What's it like to not quite arrive in mission and ministry? But here's the problem for us. This is a problem for me first. And so I had to preach this sermon to myself this week many times before uh, I preached it to you and actually got it to paper really late in the week because some of the stuff I was just struggling with. Here's the problem. We get complacent and comfortable. And we get to where we're apathetic, literally almost un, without feeling, 
apathetic. How many of you can get into places spiritually, you don't have to raise your hand, where you go, I'm all set right now. I'm kind of good. God, I would prefer you not ask more of me right now. Like, I just want to be comfortable. I just want to be chill. Lord, if you could just leave me alone for five minutes, I just want to breathe. I don't want to be weird. It's Boston. It's Charlestown. I don't want anybody to think I'm a weirdo. And we slide into this place where we become comfortable. And what Paul's saying here is there's never been a time where he, though he probably was comfortable, there never was a time where he would save at that feeling of comfort and not having to do anything and not pressing on was okay. And that's, I think, what God would call us to today. There's a great C.S. Lewis quote. I think we've got a slide of it we're going to throw up here. C.S. Lewis was an atheist who, under the influence of J.R. Tolkien and a group called the Inklings, who were a bunch of philosophers and authors in Great Britain around World War II, C.S. Lewis came to faith in Christ. And, uh, and he said this. He said, I don't go to religion, and he means Christianity, I don't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Pretty amazing. A proper Christianity, Paul would say, is uncomfortable. It requires that we strain ahead. If we want a faith that just affirms us all the time and tells us we're awesome and never asks anything of us, it's not Christianity. I think it's this supermarket religion that we kind of have now in our culture where we go through the grocery store of philosophical ideas and we pick some Christianity and we pick some Buddhism and we pick some um, universalist truth and we pick this stuff and we go to the register and we want to check out and be like, this one's good for me. Somebody else might have something else. And that supermarket religion, we never go to the shelves where it asks us to pick something that makes us uncomfortable. That's not Christianity. That is this hybrid thing that I think is kind of worthless. And I think biblically it's totally worthless. But that's the spirit of the age in which we live. This faith is not comfortable. There's more to explore. But I want to give you, if I can this morning, a few signs of complacency. You ought to write these down. Uh, I know sometimes Howard will whip out his phone and take a photo of the screen. That's great. But I'm going to move through them pretty quickly so I don't get them. But this, let this, let's let this next few minutes just be a heart check. If we can, if any of these are true for you, if you say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ, and you find some of these, like me, you find some of these being true of you, let's let God kind of do his work on our hearts this morning, if we can. Number one, sign that maybe we have grown comfortable and complacent. If you feel no tensions or paradoxes or unresolved questions about your faith, maybe you've gotten comfortable. Like, if the, if the totality of our convictions and beliefs could fit onto a bumper sticker or in a Twitter post, maybe we've gotten complacent. Look, there are things about this book and following the Jewish carpenter who died and rose again that make me extremely uncomfortable and I can't figure out. I can't wrap my brain around the Trinity. I can't. I definitely can't wrap my brain around the problem of evil. I struggle with the idea that there is a good and loving, and yet all-powerful God who allows broken things and bad and sad and awful things to happen to the people that he made loves. Now, I get it. I can give you the bumper sticker theology answer if you want to do that, but I struggle with that. There's a tension. There's a paradox there. 
for me. The idea of eternity is one that we talk through with our boys all the time. It's a, that's, a, that's a tension point for them. The idea that there is life after this life is hard for the Mangrum family. And that's okay. If, if there's not hard, then we're not pushing anymore. We're not struggling. We're not wrestling. I wrestle with grace versus the law. If grace is really free, then I don't have to do anything. God's just happy with me. But if I don't have to do anything, then it seems like Jesus died for nothing. I wrestle with that tension there. I wrestle with prayer versus God's power and control and love. These are wrestling points for me. If our theology, though, fits on a bumper sticker, we may have become complacent. If we've stopped wrestling with some of this, we maybe have stopped straining ahead. Number two, if our friends and coworkers are surprised to learn that you're a church-going, born-again Christian, maybe you've gotten complacent. If that news would be surprising to people in your life, Christians, if you're not a Christian, just put your feet up on a few of these. Like, just relax uh, and pray for the rest of us. But if that news would be surprising to people, maybe you've grown a bit complacent. This week, my kids sat down with us yesterday and said, Dan, all we've seen this week is videos of Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. I don't know if you heard. I don't know if you guys heard this week that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars. You know the coolest moment of that moment? And that moment tells us a lot about where we are as a culture, by the way. The most powerful moment to me, though, is right after it happened, when Denzel Washington and Tyler Perry got up and went and talked to Will Smith. Because if there are two men who are more committed to Christ in Hollywood than Denzel Washington and Tyler Perry, I'd love to know who they are. Now, they're not going to go preach all the time. You're not going to see them preach. And you're not going to hear them like, being some stereotypical follower of Jesus, but they're pretty open about their faith. In fact, after it happened on Sunday night, actually Denzel did an interview with T.D. Jakes on Monday, who's a pastor of a church in Houston, and talked about the moment and how his faith played into that moment. See, as no one in Hollywood was surprised that Denzel Washington and Tyler Perry were the ones who were being the ministers of reconciliation in that moment because they wear their faith like a badge of honor. It's very sincere for them. If our friends and co-workers would be surprised, maybe we've gone, grown complacent. Number three, if you are unfazed on Monday by what you heard, sang, served, received, gave, or experienced on Sunday, if Sunday's resolutions for you become Monday's rationales, maybe we've grown complacent. Number four, if no one at church ever annoys you or disappoints you, maybe you've grown complacent. Look around the room. Take a look around. You know some of these people get on your nerves, right? Like, we can say it. We can say it. If no one gets on your nerves in this room, then there's one of two problems. Only one of two things is going on. Either you are unknown or you are going through the motions. Because when different people of different ages and different races and different political views and different upbringings and different religious upbringings and all that, when, when 50 people who are really different gather in a room and the only thing we have in common is the Jewish carpenter who died and rose from the dead, then there's going to be places where we get on each other's nerves. Now, if we have to be perfect and fake it till we make it, then we could do it. But the problem with grace is grace calls us to be ourselves. Grace says that God loves us just as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. So I want to tell you, if people here get on your nerves, that's okay. That's actually a good sign. If people here disappoint you at times, I hope that doesn't happen a lot, but that shows that you're known and you're not just going through the motions. 
Uh, most of our culture right now just wants to live in an echo chamber where all the voices just agree with them. We don't want to be that here. Straining ahead in unity is hard work together. Number five, if you never feel challenged but only affirmed, you maybe have grown complacent. If you never feel challenged but only affirmed, partly that would be on me for not pushing you hard enough into who Jesus wants you to be and telling you that the Lord loves you right where you are. But I want to encourage you, are you hearing hard truths Monday through Saturday and even on Sunday? Um, There's a quote by a guy named Brett McCracken. I believe we have this up here. This is so good. Healthy faith doesn't just celebrate you as you are, but relentlessly molds and refines you into a likeness of Christ. Healthy faith pushes you. I have a buddy the other day who, uh, I don't want to give too much details of this away. I have a friend here in Boston the other day who had someone prophesy over him, which is kind of strange to me. I'm going to be honest. A lot of times when that stuff happens, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying it's kind of odd to me. I was raised Baptist and like we didn't do stuff like that. Honestly, like we read the Bible and didn't dance or smile too much. Like, so when I hear of that, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. So my friend got prophesied over, and he's a Christian, and the prophecy was that he was just going to be a world changer and an influencer and all this stuff. And there were some very specific things, and some of the things that were going to be connected with his ministry were going to be very financial. You get where I'm going with this? And so my buddy that I'm with, not the guy who was prophesied over, but another friend, a mutual friend, and I were riding on with tea, and my buddy goes, why is it that when God... When, when God Uh, when God's name is invoked to prophesy over people, it's usually just to tell them how awesome they are and how much they're going to be blessed and not ever anything painful or uncomfortable. But he goes, why is my life following Jesus not been me getting rich and influential and famous and me just learning to deny myself, take up my cross, follow him? If All you ever hear is affirming voices telling you how awesome you are and never voices saying, you've got to put your sin to death and strain ahead and run forward. Maybe you have grown into a place of complacency. Number six, if you haven't had a truth and love conversation with a fellow Christian in a while, maybe you have grown complacent. There's sometimes where you need to be on the giving end of some painful conversations, calling one another to holiness. There's sometimes we need to be on the receiving end of those conversations. Number seven, if no one in your church can identify an area of growth in you in the last year, maybe you've grown complacent. Maybe you're unknown or maybe you're unchanged. That would be more terrifying for us. And number eight, if you think this whole list is for somebody else, maybe you've grown complacent. If you heard the first seven and you go, oh, but he's talking about the super Christians in the room. Or you hear the, whole, the first seven and you go, oh, but he's talking about that person who really struggles. I'm all set. Maybe you've grown complacent and you've stopped straining ahead and you're looking around or you're looking back, but you're not looking at the destination and the finish line. If some of these are true, perhaps maybe a lot of these are true. We have grown comfortable and complacent and lukewarm. And let me read to you Revelation chapter 3, because it's a prophetic sort of warning. Jesus in Revelation 3, verse 15 through 20 says this. Jesus says, and he's speaking to a church in a town called Laodicea in the Roman Empire, but I believe the words are just as powerful for us today. He says, I know your works, 
You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, comfortable, complacent, apathetic, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich. I, get, I think if Jesus were going to say anything to us in Charlestown today, compared with other places in our country and certainly with other places in the world, I think this would be something he might say to us. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent Turn, live differently, believe differently, think differently. Verse 20, behold, if you underline your Bible, please underline this. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is inviting himself into our lives and into our apathy and lukewarmness and complacency if we will open the door to him, knowing that he will reprove and discipline and refine and yet also love and heal and restore. The gospel is not a call to try harder, but to open the door to Christ to an adventure of faith and surrender and trust and an obedience. What got us here won't take us there, but there is more to explore, and God will take us there. God will take us there, exactly where he would call us to go. So let me call us to three things really quickly. Number one, if you have grown complacent, or we have grown complacent, I would call us and you to repent, to do a 180, to turn from the direction you are going, and to accept Jesus' love and reprove and open the door to him. When he said that, he wasn't speaking to non-Christians. He was speaking to the church. Open the door to me. Repent, believe, and follow. Number two, I would call you to rely on God, not on yourself. I would call you to know God, to walk with God, to pursue God in his word, in prayer, in his church. Invite him for the first time to come into your life or invite him like it was the first time into your life 24-7. We need more Jesus. We need more Jesus. Like that sounds like stuff that we used to say in the 1980s when I was a teenager. But like we need more Christ. Our city needs more Christ. Our neighborhood needs more Jesus. It doesn't need more church people. It doesn't need more good people. It doesn't need more love and goodness. Those are all great things. Our neighborhood, our church, your life, my life need a fresh infusion of the gospel of Jesus where he stands at the door and knocks if we open it and invite him in. And number three, hear Paul saying in Philippians 3 how he strains ahead and forgets what's behind. Resume or commence the adventure. If I can be really specific here, I want to call you, if you've been complacent, and this is your church. If it's not your church, just pray for the people that are about to get their toes stepped on for just a moment, okay? Like, just pray for them. I would, I would call us to serve. If this is your church, and you say, I've been here like two weeks, but this is my church, I'm in. I would call you to resume the adventure, to serve. I would call you to give to give money to what God's doing in this neighborhood. I don't say that very often. Not because our church needs it, and certainly not because I need it. 
but because my heart and my wallet have a nerve connecting them. And when I give, I cut the nerve and say that I am following Christ in my heart more than George and Abe and Andrew and Ben in my wallet. And those two are the competing gods of our neighborhood, our city, and our culture. But only one of them is an actual God. And when we give, we join him where he is at work. So I want to call you, if you have been complacent and this is your church, to begin to give. If you don't know how to do that, let me know and I will tell you. If you want to make sure it's safe and we're not doing stupid things with God's money, listen, we view it as God's money. And we are not going to abuse it. And we keep no secrets here. I'm happy to show you the budget. I'm happy to show you whatever you want because it's not our money. It's God's money. And it is part of our discipleship. And if this is your church, I want to call you to begin to give. I want to call you to go. Some of you need to go on a mission trip to another neighborhood or to another uh, city or maybe even to another country this year. And if you say, I think God's actually telling me to do that, leading me to do that, let me know. And we'll figure out how to make that happen. I want to call you to wrestle with some things. Wrestle with some truths that are difficult. I want to call you to go deeper. I want to call you to put a sin habit to death. I had a friend of mine call me this week, and he said, man, I started chewing nicotine gum, and I feel really convicted about it. Will you just check in with me to see that I'm putting that to death? I think it's beautiful. Not because we need to write a bunch of rules on the wall that we're all going to follow, but because God's Spirit put his thumb on my buddy's heart and said, that is not going to live in your life where I'm living. And my buddy said, I'm going to put that to death by the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the people of God. Will you help me wrestle with sin and put a sin habit to death? I want to tell you, it is not who you are. My anger and insecurity and road rage at Sullivan Square are not who I am. They are a tumor. They are a tumor that I allow to fester and grow and potentially kill me. And when we let, when we become complacent about things that God hates in our life, we are letting tumors grow and we need to begin to have them cut out and put to death. Get uncomfortable. Forget the past. Some of you need to let go of some stuff that happened to you a long time ago that Jesus' blood has covered. Some of you need to let go of some stuff that you did a long time ago that Jesus' blood has covered. Forget the past. Strain ahead. Stop lying. Don't be deceitful. Be who you are. Jesus loves you just as you are. He loves you way too much to let you stay that way. And so as a church, we deeply value loyalty. We do not value faking it and pretending to be super Christians when we're not. So you come in here and be yourself. And we will fight so that we become like the image of Christ. Stop lying. Some of you, God bless you, some of you need to get married. I need to officiate your weddings, some of you. Now we're meddling. But I love you. If the Lord is doing that in you, I want to call you toward that. Some of you need to confess sin. Some of you need to grab a brother or sister in this room and be like, I've been struggling with this and getting my butt kicked alone for months. And I'm done feeling defeated in private. I'm going to get victory with you. And you grab that friend by the hand and you say, Jesus loves you and Jesus forgives you. And I am with you and we will fight together. Confess sin. Some of you need to stop robbing God of your money. 
Some of you need to let go of prejudice and resentment. Some of you need to go on a mission trip. Some of you need to invite a, invite a friend or coworker on Palm Sunday or Easter. Some of you just need to become more open that you follow Jesus and that he is the capital L Lord of your lowercase h heart. And he rules and he sits on the throne of your life. There is more to explore, but comfort and complacency is not going to get you there. It is going to leave you on a treadmill of defeat and failure and regret. And Jesus, by his spirit today, is calling you to get off of it and run the race, strain ahead, forget what is behind. The destination, I love this, the destination of discomfort is not sore muscles. And it's definitely not shame and guilt. The destination of discomfort is delight in Christ. It's not pride, it's not accomplishment, it's not gold stickers from God, but it is smiling and delighting in God and knowing that when Jesus looks at you, he smiles and delights in you. That's what the Lord is calling us to, church. Luke 9.62, Jesus says this, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, one of my spiritual heroes, Jim Elliott, it was his life verse, and when I heard it for the first time, it stuck with me. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What's true in plowing is true in running. If you are going this way and looking this way, you will get offline and you will miss the destination God is calling you to. No one who puts his hand or her hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. But can I tell you the gospel? The converse is true too. The one who puts his or her hand to the plow and keeps moving forward, keeps their eyes on Christ, is going to hear him say, good work, I love you, I delight in you, and not just when we get to heaven. They're the people who sleep the best at night. The people who have sold out, it's all on the table, I'm all in, I'm done with mediocre living, I'm done with no holes in my jeans because I haven't got down my knees in prayer, I'm, I'm done with my bank account not reflecting any of my gospel convictions, I'm done with my calendar, my iCal not looking like Jesus a priority. The people who uh, are done with that sleep the best at night, and they're the freest people in this city. Don't put your hand to the plow and look back, but know that as you do, plow on and keep moving forward. But Lord looks at you and says, I delight in you. You make me happy. If you hear nothing today, hear this. Christian, if you've given your life to Christ, when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't say, try hard or strain forward. Jesus says, I delight in you. You make me happy. And that compels us to strain forward. That frees us to strain forward. And if you are not a follower of Christ, if you've never had a moment in your life where you say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but today I'm turning from that and I'm trusting you. Will you come into my life? I accept your death on the cross and your resurrection. For my life, I receive you. At that moment, Jesus says, I delight in you. I died for you. Thank you for opening the door and inviting me in. Let me pray for us.